Chapter 4, Part 1 of A Narrative of a Revolutionary Soldier by Joseph Plum Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Campaign of 1778, Part 1. A serene and cloudless atmosphere betokens that a storm is near. So when Dame Fortune proves most kind, be sure misfortunes close behind. As there was no cessation of duty in the army, I must commence another campaign as soon as the succeeding one is ended. There was no going home and spending the winter season among friends, and procuring a new recruit of strength and spirits. No, it was one constant drill, summer and winter. Like an old horse in a mill, it was a continual routine. The first expedition I undertook in my new vocation was a foraging cruise. I was ordered off into the country in a party consisting of a corporal and six men. What our success was I do not now remember, but I well remember the transactions of the party in the latter part of the journey. We were returning to our quarters on Christmas afternoon when we met three ladies, one a young married woman with an infant in her arms, the other two were maidens, for aught I knew then and since they passed for such. They were all comely, particularly one of them. She was handsome. They immediately fell into familiar discourse with us were very inquisitive like the rest of the sex, asked us a thousand questions respecting our business, where we had been and where going, etc. After we had satisfied their curiosity, or at least had endeavored to do so, they told us that they, that is, the two youngest, lived a little way on our road in a house which they described, desired us to call in and rest ourselves a few minutes, and said they would return as soon as they had seen their sister and babe safe home. As for myself, I was very unwell, occasioned by a violent cold I had recently taken, and was very glad to stop a short time to rest my bones. Accordingly we stopped at the house described by the young ladies, and in a few minutes they returned as full of chat as they were when we met them in the road. After a little more information respecting our business, they proposed to us to visit one of their neighbors, against whom it seemed they had a grudge, and upon whom they wished to wreak their vengeance through our agency. To oblige the ladies we undertook to obey their injunctions. They very readily agreed to be our guides as the way lay across fields and pastures full of bushes. The distance was about half a mile, and directly out of our way to our quarters. The girls went with us until we came in sight of the house. We concluded we could do no less than fulfill our engagements with them, so we went into the house, the people of which appeared to be genuine Pennsylvania farmers, and very fine folks. We all now began to relent, and after telling them our business, we concluded that if they would give us a canteen, which held about a quart, full of whiskey, and some bread and cheese, we would depart without any further exactions. To get rid of us, doubtless, the man of the house gave us our canteen of whiskey, and the good woman gave us a fine loaf of wheat and flour bread, and the whole of a small cheese, and we raised the siege and departed. I was several times afterwards at this house, and was always well treated. I believe the people did not recollect me, and I was glad they did not, for when I saw them I had always a twinge or two of conscience, for thus dissembling with them at the instigation of persons who were certainly no better than they should be, or they would not have employed strangers to glut their vengeance upon innocent people, innocent at least as it respected us. But after all, it turned much in their favor. It was in our power to take cattle or horses, hay, or any other produce from them, but we felt that we had done wrong in listening to the tattle of malicious neighbors, and for that cause we refrained from meddling with any property of theirs ever after. 
so that good came to them out of intended evil. After we had received our bread, cheese, and whiskey, we struck across the fields into the highway again. It was now nearly sunset, and as soon as we had got into the road, the youngest of the girls, and the handsomest and chattiest, overtook us again, riding on horseback with a gallant. As soon as she came up with us, Oh, here is my little captain again, said she. It appeared it was our corporal that attracted her attention. I am glad to see you again. The young man, her sweetheart, did not seem to wish her to be quite so familiar with her little captain, and urged on his horse as fast as possible. But female policy is generally too subtle for the males, and she exhibited a proof of it, for they had scarcely passed us when she slid from the horse upon her feet into the road with a streak as though some frightful accident had happened to her. There was nothing handy to serve as a horse-block, so the little captain must take her in his arms and set her upon her horse again, much, I suppose, to their mutual satisfaction, but not so to her gallant, who, as I thought, looked rather glum. We had now five miles to travel to reach our quarters, and I was sick indeed, but we got to our home some time in the evening, and I soon went to sleep. In the morning I was better. When I was inoculated with the smallpox, I took that delectable disease, the itch. It was given us, we supposed, in the infection. We had no opportunity, or at least we had nothing to cure ourselves with during the whole season. All who had the smallpox at Peekskill had it. We often applied to our officers for assistance to clear ourselves from it, but all we could get was, Bear it as patiently as you can. When we get into winter quarters, you will have leisure and means to rid yourselves of it. I had it to such a degree that by the time I got into winter quarters I could scarcely lift my hands to my head. Some of our foraging party had acquaintances in the artillery, and by their means we procured sulphur enough to cure all that belonged to our detachment. Accordingly, we made preparations for a general attack upon it. The first night one half of the party commenced the action by mixing a sufficient quantity of brimstone and tallow, which was the only grease we could get at the same time not forgetting to mix a plenty of hot whiskey toddy, making up a blazing hot fire, and laying down an ox-hide upon the hearth. Thus, prepared with arms and ammunition, we began the operation by plying each other's outsides with brimstone and tallow, and the inside with hot whiskey sling. Had the animacle of the itch been endowed with reason, they would have quit their entrenchments and taken care of themselves, when we had made such a formidable attack upon them but as it was we had to engage, arms in hand, and we obtained a complete victory, though it had like to have cost us some of our lives. Two of the assailants were so overcome, not by the enemy, but by their two great exertions in the action, that they lay all night naked upon the field. The rest of us got to our berths somehow, as well as we could, but we killed the itch, and we were satisfied, for it had almost killed us. This was a decisive victory the only one which we had achieved lately. The next night the other half of our men took their turn, but, taking warning by our mishaps, they conducted their part of the battle with comparatively little trouble or danger to what we had experienced on our part. I shall not relate all the minute transactions which passed while I was on this foraging party, as it would swell my narrative to too large a size. I will, however, give the reader a brief account of some of my movements, that I may not leave him entirely ignorant how I spent my time. We fared much better than I had ever done in the army before, or ever did afterwards. We had very good provisions all winter, and generally enough of them. Some of us were constantly in the country with the wagons, 
we went out by turns and had no one to control us. Our lieutenant scarcely ever saw us, or we him. Our sergeant never went out with us once all the time we were there, nor our corporal but once, and that was when he was the little captain. When we were in the country we were pretty sure to fare well, for the inhabitants were remarkably kind to us. We had no guards to keep. Our only duty was to help load the wagons with hay, corn, meal, or whatever they were to take off, and when they were thus loaded, to keep them company till they arrived at the commissaries at Milltown. From thence the articles, whatever they were, were carried to camp in other vehicles under other guards. I do not remember during the time I was employed in this business, which was from Christmas to the latter part of April, ever to have met with the least resistance from the inhabitants, take what we would from their barns, mills, corn-cribs, or stall, but when we came to their stables, then look out for the women. Take what horse you would, it was one or the other's pony, and they had no other ride to church, and when we had got possession of a horse, we were sure to have half a dozen or more women pressing upon us, until by some means or other, if possible, they would slip the bridle from the horse's head, and then we might catch him again if we could. They would take no more notice of a charged bayonet than a blind horse would of a cocked pistol. It would answer no purpose to threaten to kill them with the bayonet or musket. They knew as well as we did that we would not put our threats in execution. And when they had thus liberated a horse, which happened but seldom, they would laugh at us and ask us why we did not do as we threatened, kill them. And then they would generally ask us into their houses, and treat us with as much kindness as though nothing had happened. The women of Pennsylvania, taken in general, are certainly very worthy characters. It is but justice, as far as I am concerned, for me to say, that I was always well treated by both them and the men, especially the Friends or Quakers, in every part of the state through which I passed, and that was the greater part of what was then inhabited. But the Southern ladies had a queer idea of the Yankees, as they always called the New Englanders, they seemed to think that they were a people quite different from themselves, as indeed they were in many respects. I could mention many things and ways in which they differed, but it is of no consequence. They were clever, and that is sufficient. I will, however, mention one little incident, just to show what their conceptions were of us. I happened once to be with some wagons, one of which was detached from the party. I went with this team as its guard, we stopped at a house the mistress of which and the wagoneer were acquainted. The foraging teams all belonged in the neighborhood of our quarters. She had a pretty little female child about four years old. The teamster was praising the child, extolling his gentleness and quietness, when the mother observed that it had been quite cross and crying all day. "'I have been threatening,' said she, "'to give her to the Yankees.' "'Take care,' said the wagoneer. "'How you speak of the Yankees. I have one of them here with me.' La said the woman. Is he a Yankee? I thought he was a Pennsylvanian. I don't see any difference between him and other people. I have before said that I should not narrate all the little affairs which transpired while I was on this foraging party, but if I pass them all over in silence, the reader may perhaps think that I had nothing to do all winter, or at least that I did nothing, when in truth it was quite the reverse. Our duty was hard, but generally not altogether unpleasant. I had to travel far and near, in cold and in storms, by day and by night, and at all times to run the risk of abuse, if not of inquiry, from the inhabitants when plundering them of their property, for I could not, while in the very act of taking their cattle, hay, corn, and grain from them against their wills, consider it a whit better than plundering, sheer privateering. 
but I will give them the credit of never receiving the least abuse or injury from an individual during the whole time I was employed in this business. I doubt whether the people of New England would have borne it as patiently, their steady habits to the contrary notwithstanding. Being once in a party among the Welch Mountains, there came on a tedious rainstorm, which continued three or four days. I happened to be at a farmer's house with one or two of the wagon-masters. The man of the house was from the home, and the old lady rather crabbed. She knew our business, and was therefore inclined to be rather unsociable. The first day she would not give us anything to eat but some scraps of cold victuals. The second day she grew a little more condescending, and on the third day she boiled a pot full of good beef, pork, and sauerkraut for us. "'Never mind,' said one of the wagon-masters to me. "'Mother comes on. She will give us roasted turkeys directly.' There was a little negro boy belonging to the house about five or six years of age, who, the whole time I was there, sat upon a stool in the chimney-corner. Indeed, he looked as if he had sat there ever since he was born. One of the wagon-masters said to the landlady one day, "'Mother, is that your son that sits in the corner?' "'My son,' said she. "'Why, don't you see he is a negro?' "'A negro. Is he?' said the man. "'Why, I really thought he was your son.' only that he had sat there until he was smoke-dried. While the storm continued to pass our time, several of our party went to a tavern in the neighborhood. We here gambled a little for some liquor, by throwing a small dart or stick, armed at one end with a pin, at a mark on the ceiling of the room. While I was at this amusement I found that the landlord and I bore the same name, and upon further discourse I found that he had a son about my age, whose given name was the same as mine. This son was taken prisoner at Fort Lee on the Hudson River in the year 1776, and died on his way home. These good people were almost willing to persuade themselves that I was their son. There were two very pretty girls, sisters to the deceased young man, who seemed wonderfully taken up with me, called me brother, and I fared none the worse for my name. I used often afterwards, in my cruises to that part of the state, to call in as I passed, and was always well treated by the whole family. The landlord used to fill my canteen with whiskey or peach or cider brandy to enable me, as he said, to climb the Welch Mountains. I always went there with pleasure, and left with regret. I often wished afterwards that I could find more namesakes. I was sent one day, with another man of our party, to drive some cattle to the quartermaster general's quarters. It was dark when we arrived there. After we had delivered the cattle, an officer belonging to the quartermaster general's department asked me if I had a canteen. I answered in the negative. I had left mine at my quarters. A soldier, said he, should always have a canteen, and I was sorry that I was just then deficient of the article, for he gave us a half-pint tumbler full of genuine old Jamaica spirits, which was, like Boniface's ale, as smooth as oil. It was too late to return to our quarters that night, so we concluded to go to camp, about three miles distant, and see our old messmates. Our stomachs being empty, the spirits began to take hold of both belly and brains. I soon became very faint, but as good luck would have it, my companion happened to have a part of a dried neat's tongue, which he had plundered somewhere in his travels. We fell to work upon that, and soon demolished it, which refreshed us much, and enabled us to reach camp without suffering shipwreck. There was nothing to be had at camp but a little rest, and that was all we asked. In the morning it was necessary to have a pass from the commander of the regiment to enable us to pass the guards on our return to our quarters in the country. My captain gave me one, and then it must be countersigned by the colonel. 
When I entered the colonel's hut, Where have you been, calling me by name, this winter, said he, Why, you are as fat as a pig. I told him I had been foraging in the country. I think, said he, you have taken care of yourself. I believe we must keep you here and send another man in your stead, that he may recruit himself a little. I told him that I was sent to camp on particular business and with strict orders to return, and that no one else could do so well. Finally he signed my pass, and I soon hunted up the other man, when we left the camp in as great a hurry as though the plague had been there. But the time at length came, when we were obliged to go to camp for good and all, whether we chose to or not. An order from headquarters required all stationed parties and guards to be relieved, that all who had not had the smallpox might have an opportunity to have it before the warm weather came on. Accordingly, about the last of April, we were relieved by a party of southern troops. The commissary, who was a native of Connecticut, although at the commencement of the war he resided in Philadelphia, told us that he was sorry we were going away, for, said he, I do not much like these men with one eye, alluding to their practice of gouging. I am acquainted with you, and if any men are wanted here I should prefer those from my own section of the country to entire strangers. Although we would have very willingly obliged him with our company, yet it could not be so. We must go to camp at all events. We accordingly marched off and arrived at camp the next day, much to the seeming satisfaction of our old messmates, and as much to the real dissatisfaction of ourselves. At least it was so with me. Thus far, since the year commenced, Dame Fortune had been kind, but now Misfortune was coming in for her set in the reel. I had now to enter again on my old system of starving. There was nothing to eat. I had brought two or three days' rations in my knapsack, and while that lasted I made shift to get along. But that was soon gone, and I was then obliged to come to it again, which was sorely against my grain. During the past winter I had had enough to eat and been under no restraint. I had picked up a few articles of comfortable summer clothing among the inhabitants. Our lieutenant had never concerned himself about us. We had scarcely seen him during the whole time. When we were off duty we went when and where we pleased, and had none to make us afraid. But now the scene was changed. We must go and come at bidding, and suffer hunger besides. After I had joined my regiment I was kept constantly, when off other duty, engaged in learning the Baron de Steuben's new Prussian exercise. It was a continual drill. About this time I was sent off from camp in a detachment consisting of about three thousand men, with four field pieces under the command of the young General Lafayette. We marched to Baron Hill about twelve miles from Philadelphia. There are crossroads upon this hill, a branch of which leads to the city. We halted here, placed our guards, sent off our scouting parties, and waited for I know not what. A company of about a hundred Indians, from some northern tribe, joined us here. There were three or four young Frenchmen with them. The Indians were stout-looking fellows, and remarkably neat for that race of mortals, but they were Indians. There was upon the hill, and just where we are laying, an old church built of stone, entirely divested of all its entrails. The Indians were amusing themselves and the soldiers by shooting with their bows, in and about the church. I observed something in the corner of the roof which did not appear to belong to the building, and desired an Indian who was standing near me to shoot an arrow at it. He did so, and it proved to be a cluster of bats. I should think there were nearly a bushel of them, all hanging upon one another. The house was immediately alive with them, and it was likewise instantly full of Indians and soldiers. 
The poor bats fared hard. It was sport for all hands. They killed, I know not how many, but there was a great slaughter among them. I never saw so many bats before nor since, nor indeed in my whole life put all together. The next day I was one of a guard to protect the horses belonging to the detachment. They were in a meadow of six or eight acres, entirely surrounded by tall trees. It was cloudy and a low fog hung all night upon the meadow, and for several hours during the night there was a jack-o'-lantern cruising in the eddying air. The poor thing seemed to wish to get out of the meadow, but could not. The air circulating within the enclosure of trees would not permit it. Several of the guard endeavored to catch it, but did not succeed. Footnote. Professor Silliman had said, on the authority of a certain Dr. Somebody, that jack-o'-lanterns never move. With due submission to such high authority, I would crave their pardon for telling them that they labor under a mistake. I have seen many of these exhalations, two of which I am satisfied beyond a doubt were moving when I saw them, the one mentioned in the text, and the other when I was a youngster. I was one evening walking in a lane in a sequestered place, the road crossing a low, boggy piece of land, when I saw one of these meteors, if they may be so called, coming down the low ground before the wind, which was quick. It crossed the road within ten feet of me and passed on till it was lost in the distance. Now I could not be deceived in this instance. I saw it, and I could see with my natural eyes as well as a philosopher could with his. But I have lately heard of a new idea concerning them. That is, that they are a species of glowworm in their butterfly state. If that is the case, they must of necessity move, the opinion of the scientific gentleman to the contrary notwithstanding. End footnote. Just at the dawn of the day the officers' waiters came, almost breathless, after the horses. Upon inquiring for the cause of the unusual hurry, we were told that the British were advancing upon us in our rear. How they could get there was to us a mystery, but they were there. We helped the waiters to catch their horses, and immediately returned to the main body of the detachment. We found the troops all under arms and in motion, preparing for an onset. Those of the troops belonging to our brigade were put into the churchyard, which was enclosed by a wall of stone and lime about breast high, a good defense against musketry, but poor against artillery. I began to think I should soon have some better sport than killing bats. But our commander found that the enemy was too strong to be engaged in the position we then occupied. He therefore wisely ordered a retreat from this place to the Shulkiel, where we might choose any position that we pleased, having ragged woody hills in our rear and the river in front. It was about three miles to the river. The weather was exceeding warm, and I was in the rear platoon of the detachment, except two platoons of General Washington's guards. The quick motion in front kept the rear on a constant trot. Two pieces of artillery were in front and two in the rear. The enemy had nearly surrounded us by the time our retreat commenced, but the road we were in was very favorable for us it being for the most part, and especially the first part of it, through small woods and copses. When I was about halfway to the river, I saw the right wing of the enemy through a lawn about half a mile distant. But they were too late. Besides, they made a blunder here. They saw our rear guard with two field pieces in its front, and thinking at the front of the detachment, they closed in to secure their prey. But when they had sprung their net, they found that they had not a single bird under it. We crossed the Shilkiel in good order, very near the spot where I had crossed it four times in the month of October the preceding autumn. 
As fast as the troops crossed, they formed and prepared for action, and waited for them to attack us. But we saw no more of them that time, for before we had reached the river, the alarm guns were fired in our camp, and the whole army was immediately in motion. The British, fearing that they should be outnumbered in their turn, directly set their faces for Philadelphia, and set off in as much or more haste than we had left Barren Hill. They had, during the night, left the city with such silence and secrecy, and by taking what was called the New York Road, that they escaped detection by all our parties, and the first knowledge they obtained of the enemy's movements was that he was upon their backs, between them and us on the hill. The Indians, with all their alertness, had liked to have bought the rabbit. They kept coming in all the afternoon in parties of four or five, whooping and hallooing like wild beasts. After they had got collected, they vanished. I never saw any more of them. Our scouting parties all came in safe, but I was afterwards informed by a British deserter that several of the enemy perished by the heat and their exertions to get away from a retreating enemy. The place that our detachment was now at was the Gulf, mentioned in the preceding chapter, where we kept the rice and vinegar thanksgiving of starving memory. We stayed here until nearly night, when, no one coming to visit us, we marched off and took up our lodgings for the night in a wood. The next day we crossed the Shulkeel again and went to Barren Hill once more. We stayed there a day or two and then returned to camp with keen appetites and empty purses. If anyone asked why we did not stay on Barren Hill till the British came up and have taken and given a few bloody noses, all I have to say in answer is that the general well knew what he was about. He was not deficient in either courage or conduct, and that was well known to all the Revolutionary Army. Soon after this affair, we left our winter cantonments, crossed the Shulkeel, and encamped on the left bank of that river, just opposite to our winter quarters. We had lain here but a few days, when we heard that the British Army had left Philadelphia and were proceeding to New York, through the Jerseys. We marched immediately in pursuit. We crossed the Delaware at Carroll's Ferry, above Trenton, and encamped a day or two between that town and Princeton. Here I was again detached with a party of one thousand men, as light troops, to get into the enemy's route and follow him close, to favor desertion and pick up stragglers. The day we were drafted the sun was eclipsed. Had this happened upon such an occasion in olden time, it would have been considered ominous either of good or bad fortune, but we took no notice of it. Our detachment marched in the afternoon and towards night as we passed through Princeton. Some of the patriotic inhabitants of the town had brought out to the end of the street we passed through some casks of ready-made toddy. It was dealt out to the men as they passed by, which caused the detachment to move slowly at this place. The young ladies of the town, and perhaps of the vicinity, had collected and were sitting in the stoops and at the windows to see the noble exhibition of a thousand half-starved and three-quarters naked soldiers pass in review before them. I chanced to be on the wing of a platoon next to the houses, as they were chiefly on one side of the street, and had a good chance to notice the ladies, and I declare that I never before nor since saw more beauty, considering the numbers, than I saw at that time. They were all beautiful. New Jersey and Pennsylvania ladies are, in my opinion, collectively handsome, the most so of any in the United States. But I hope our Yankee ladies will not be jealous at hearing this. I allow that they have as many mental beauties as others have personal, perhaps more. I know nothing about it. They are all handsome. We passed through Princeton and encamped on the open fields for the night, the canopy of heaven for our tent. 
Early next morning we marched again and came up with the rear of the British army. We followed them several days, arriving upon their camping ground within an hour after their departure from it. We had ample opportunity to see the devastation they made in their route. Cattle killed and laying about the fields and pastures, some just in the position they were in when shot down, others with a small spot of skin taken off their hindquarters and a mess of steak taken out. Household furniture hacked and broken to pieces, wells filled up and mechanics and farmers' tools destroyed. It was in the height of the season of cherries. The innocent, industrious creatures could not climb the trees for the fruit, but universally cut them down. Such conduct did not give the Americans any more agreeable feelings toward them than they entertained before. It was extremely hot weather, and the sandy plains of that part of New Jersey did not cool the air to any great degree, but we still kept close to the rear of the British Army. Deserters were almost hourly coming over to us, but of stragglers we took only a few. My risibility was always pretty easily excited at any innocent, ludicrous incident. The following circumstance gave me cause to laugh as well as all the rest who heard it. We halted in a wood for a few minutes in the heat of the day, on the ascent of a hill, and were lolling on the sides of the road when there passed by two old men, both upon one horse that looked as if the crows had bespoken him. I did not know but Sancho Panza had lost his dapple, and was mounted behind Don Quixote upon Rosanette, and bound upon some adventure with the British. However, they had not long been gone past us before another, about the same age and complexion, came stemming by on foot. Just as he arrived where I was sitting, he stopped short, and looking toward the soldiers said, Did you see two old horses riding a Dutchman this road up? Hoy! The soldiers set up a laugh, as well as they might, and the poor old Dutchman, finding he had gone dale foremost in his question, made the best of his way off, out of hearing of us. We this night turned into a new ploughed field, and I laid down between two furrows, and slept as sweet as though I had laid upon a bed of down. The next morning, as soon as the enemy began their march, we were again in motion, and came to their last night's encamping ground just after sunrise. Here we halted an hour or two, as we often had to do, to give the enemy time to advance, our orders being not to attack them unless in self-defense. We were marching on as usual, when, about ten or eleven o'clock, we were ordered to halt and then to face to the right about. As this order was given by the officers in a rather different way than usual, we began to think something was out of joint somewhere, but what or where our united wisdom could not explain. The general opinion of the soldiers was that some part of the enemy had by some means got into our rear. We, however, retraced our steps till we came to our last night's encamping ground, when we left the route of the enemy and went off a few miles to a place called Englishtown. It was uncommonly hot weather, and we put up booths to protect us from the heat of the sun, which was almost insupportable. Whether we lay here one or two nights, I do not remember. It matters not which. We were early in the morning mustered out and ordered to leave all our baggage under the care of a guard. Our baggage was trifling. Taking only our blankets and provisions, our provisions were less, and prepare for immediate march and action. The officer who commanded the platoon that I belonged to was a captain, belonging to the Rhode Island troops, and a fine brave man he was. He feared nobody nor nothing. When we were paraded, Now, said he to us, you have been wishing for some days past to come up with the British. You have been waiting to fight. Now you shall have fighting enough before night. 
The men did not need much haranguing to raise their courage, for when the officers came to order the sick and lame to stay behind his guards, they were forced to exercise their authority to the full extent before they could make even the invalids stay behind, and when some of their arms were about to be exchanged with those who were going into the field, they would not part with them. If their arms went, they said, they would go with them at all events. After all things were put in order, we marched, but halted a few minutes in the village, where we were joined by a few other troops, and then proceeded on. We now heard a few reports of cannon ahead. We went in a road running through a deep, narrow valley, which was for a considerable way covered with thick wood. We were some time in passing this defile. While in the wood we heard a volley or two of musketry, and upon inquiry we found it to be a party of our troops who had fired upon a party of British horse, but there was no fear of horse in the place in which we were then. It was ten or eleven o'clock before we got through these woods and came into the open fields. The first cleared land we came to was an Indian cornfield, surrounded on the east, west, and north sides by thick, tall trees. The sun shining full upon the field, the soil of which was sandy, the mouth of a heated oven seemed to me to be but a trifle hotter than this ploughed field. It was almost impossible to breathe. We had to fall back again as soon as we could into the woods. By the time we had got under the shade of the trees and had taken breath, of which we had been almost deprived, we received orders to retreat, as all the left wing of the army, that part being under the command of General Lee, were retreating. Braiding, as this order was to our feelings, we were obliged to comply. We had not retreated far before we came to a defile, a muddy, slothy brook. While the infantry were passing this place, we sat down by the roadside. In a few minutes the commander-in-chief and suit crossed the road just where we were sitting. I heard him ask our officers by whose order the troops were retreating, and being answered by General Lee's, he said something, but as he was moving forward all the time this was passing, he was too far off for me to hear it distinctly. Those that were nearer to him said that his words were, Damn him! Whether he did thus express himself or not, I do not know. It was certainly very unlike him, but he seemed at the instant to be in a great passion. His looks, if not his words, seemed to indicate as much. After passing us, he rode on to the plain field and took an observation of the advancing enemy. He remained there some time upon his old English charger, while the shot from the British artillery were rending up the earth all around him. After he had taken a view of the enemy, he returned and ordered the two Connecticut brigades to make a stand at a fence in order to keep the enemy in check while the artillery and other troops crossed the before-mentioned defile. It was the Connecticut and Rhode Island forces which occupied this post, notwithstanding what Dr. Ramsey says to the contrary. He seems willing, to say the least, to give the southern troops the credit due to the northern. A historian ought to be sure of the truth of circumstances before he relates them. When we had secured our retreat, the artillery formed a line of pieces upon a long piece of elevated ground. Our detachment formed directly in front of the artillery, as a covering party, so far below on the declivity of the hill that the pieces could play over our heads, and here we waited the approach of the enemy, should he see fit to attack us. End of chapter 4, part 1